There's an old nursery rhyme about what little boys are made of. Snips and snails and puppy dog tails, while girls, according to the poem, are made of sugar and spice and everything nice. I'm reminded of this simple and powerful poem about gender roles when I think about the disappearance of Susan Powell and everything that would come after. Susan Powell's journals reveal a young woman who yearned to be a wife and a mother. And Susan was an amazing mother to Charlie and Braden. And oh, how she tried to be a good wife. But her husband, Josh Powell, didn't make that easy. Not by a long shot. To say that Josh's twisted ideas of what he believed his wife should be turned Susan's dream of a family, the sugar and spice and everything nice, into a living nightmare, trapped in an emotionally abusive marriage. She leaned into her religion for guidance and support, but who could have foreseen the lengths of depravity Josh would delve into to get what he wanted? Last week in episode one of our two-part series, we reveal that Susan Powell disappeared, but she left behind a haunting trail of breadcrumbs. A videotape and secret will that warned of the extreme turmoil in her marriage, and that if something happened to her, well, it might not be an accident, even if it looked like one. Susan was afraid of her husband, Josh, In episode two, we'll continue to unpack how Susan's disappearance and Josh's behavior after would set in motion what would become a runaway freight train of events hurtling toward the unthinkable. The murders of Charlie and Braden by their own father. And could this case change history for the many vulnerable children in the foster care system of Washington State? I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. Oh, Carolyn, I'm so glad you gave us just a little bit of hope there. This whole story, especially, obviously, the deaths of Charlie and Braden is so tragic. I I hope there's some kind of, you know, bit of silver lining at the end of all this. But let's get back to the story. At this point, it's wintertime in Utah, snow's on the ground. Josh Powell claims that he had just taken his two little boys for a camping trip. They came home and his wife was missing. But then, of course, one of those little boys says, well, mom came camping with us. She just didn't come home. Police say by December 24th, Josh was considered a person of interest, duh. But he was never arrested (laughs) for his wife's disappearance. Less than two weeks after his wife went missing, he took his boys to his dad's house in Puyallup, Washington, quote unquote, for the holidays. And on January 6th, Josh then returned with his brother, Michael. Now, remember his brother, Michael, because we're going to get back to him. There's a lot to unpack with this brother. Anyway, Josh and Michael, they drove to Utah and in a whirlwind, packed the family's belongings, got a storage unit, and moved to Puyallup for good, where Josh brought his boys to live with his dad, Steve, in that house. Oh, in that house of horrors. Yeah, exactly. It was during that time that, allegedly, Josh and Steve started the SusanPowell.org website, 
where anonymous entries claim that Josh's reputation was being smeared by his estranged sister, Jennifer, the LDS church, and Susan's family. More posts proffered an alternative theory that Susan had run off with this guy named Stephen Coker, who happened to vanish the same week as Susan, and that the two had run off to Brazil together. Now, Susan's family vehemently rejected these claims as being unsupported by any evidence and that Susan would never leave her children. West Valley City police say they never had enough evidence to bring charges against Josh because they didn't have a body or a crime scene. Now, obviously, many disagree with this, including legal experts and law enforcement in Washington state. Where do you stand on this? Because... There's a lot of it. That's a hard one. You know, it's so hard to Monday morning quarterback this kind of thing. But um, gosh, I do feel like they should have at least arrested him and tried to put together a case. I don't know how far they actually went with that. I know they investigated him, but did they actually put together what evidence they had, give it to the district attorney and say, can we prosecute? Like, did they actually take that step? Because I feel like that's an important thing to do. I I mean, it's one thing for the police officers to say, we don't know if we have enough evidence, but it's another for the prosecutor to say that. I think there was definitely that push-pull between prosecutors like, we don't have enough, we don't have enough. Because remember, as they were... Looking at all these possibilities, you know, Steve could have had just as much as a motive as Josh to want to get rid of Susan because he couldn't have her or who knows. I mean, they already are getting information on him that he's a kind of a weirdo or not kind of like definitely has issues. Well, and, and, and once they I tried could see him, where she had already said she wanted to leave him and wanted a divorce that you know, they might believe that she had tried to leave on her own. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, she left her boys. She would never do that, clearly. And then this other dude, Coker, did he ever surface anywhere? Like, what happened with him? You know what? To my knowledge, he's never surfaced. It just so happens that he disappeared at around the same time. I guess it's a possibility. Did she know him? Did they have evidence that they were friends or anything? I don't think she knew him, but there were ties, just weird random ties, but not anything specific. But it would be enough for, you know, for a really good defense attorney to have some doubt. I think they should have arrested him and I think they should have went to trial. But I could see why they I could see the reasons of why they wanted to continue building this case. But I mean, I have seen I have heard in in my true crime you know, forays and different podcasts and stuff like people have been convicted on much less evidence. And the evidence that she had against him was so the circumstantial evidence was so powerful. And and remember, police kept looking for Susan's body in abandoned mines in the Utah desert. And the relationship between the Powell and Cox families became even more toxic There were many points of contention, custody of the boys. The Powell family wouldn't even let the Coxes spend time with their grandchildren. Um, And then there was also Susan's journals that the Cox family felt the Powells were exploiting. Interviews given to the media by Steve gave police probable cause for a search warrant of Steve's house in 2011 to find Susan's journals. When they executed that search warrant, investigators were hoping to at last get enough dirt on Josh to arrest him for Susan's disappearance. But investigators said, you mentioned the House of Horrors, Kim, and you were not 
off the mark there. In Stephen's room, they found child pornography and evidence that Steve had secretly videotaped numerous women and young girls, including Susan. More than 4,500 photos of Susan. Many included close-ups of specific body parts. And it was clear by the photos that Susan had no idea that she was being photographed. So Steve was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography. And police told DSHS the boys were in danger. And so they became wards of the state. Once Steve had been arrested, Chuck Cox, Susan's dad, filed for custody of Charlie and Braden. And the Coxes were granted temporary custody of the boys. The court told Josh that if he was to regain custody of Charlie and Braden, he would have to move out of Steve's home and undergo a court-ordered psych evaluation. Now, all of this is an interesting point to talk about. Like, there's a lot... There's a lot of guys who potentially could have murdered their wives. And so this is a big deal. Like they get custody of the children when they might have possibly murdered their mother. You know, the, the, the boys weren't taken from Josh because he might have potentially have murdered his wife or at least had something to do with her disappearance. They were they were custody was given to the grandparents finally because of that um, search warrant and because Steve was you know, arrested. And so anyway, I just thought that that was an interesting point to talk about, like how awful that must have been for the Cox family that their grandchildren are with the father who could possibly have murdered their mother. You know, I wonder also about the difference between just the whole way things work in Utah versus the way they work in Washington, mm-hmm. whether it's law enforcement, whether it's just the community in general, like the um, the vibe of the community because of the heavy LDS presence and the heavy focus on family, super, super conservative. And then you go to Washington where it's sort of the opposite. And I wonder if that played a role in the fact that we're willing to go out on a limb and take these kids away from their dad, whereas Utah, they were not. Well, in fairness to Utah, he bolted so fast, they didn't have jurisdiction in Washington. Like, they, Utah is actually still trying to work. And this is a really great point that you've brought up, because let me give a little bit more detail, and I'll explain why. So... Josh rented a house, you know, because the court said, hey, you can't live at Steve's home. Um, But authorities allege it was all for show that he never actually moved into this house and was just using the rental to satisfy the court to get Charlie and Braden back while he continued to live at his dad's home. Now, according to a 2012 interview in the Psychology in Seattle podcast, the forensic psychologist who was hired by the state of Washington to evaluate Josh Powell said that he interviewed Josh for a total of eight hours. Now, the state's evaluator found that Josh had adequate parenting skills, a steady employment history, and no criminal record or history of domestic violence. And here's that part where we were talking about where... He was emotionally abusive, but there was no, at least on record, physical abuse, right? So the evaluator said that he still had some concerns. And so the initial recommendation was for Josh to have visitations with his sons several times a week and that they should be supervised for a social worker. Now, here's the part that I was talking about where the Utah police were worried about these kids. And so what they did was... The West Valley City Police had seized a bunch of computers from Josh's home after Susan disappeared in 2009. But 
Josh was so computer savvy and he put these sophisticated computer encryption on all of these computers. I mean, crazy. Like, I think the FBI even tried to track. They're still trying to crack some of the codes on his um, his computer encryption. But anyway, before the judge ruled to give him back temporary custody or to get him, you know, in that process, they were able to find on one of his computers, they were able to get into it and they found cartoon incest pornography. The images, while not illegal due to their being in a hand-drawn or cartoonish 3D format, were cause for great concern. And so to the person who conducted that court-ordered evaluation, particularly because Josh had denied having such material to this court evaluator. And so the pictures were, I mean, it's just, I mean, just to give you an idea the pictures some of the pictures were depictions of cartoon characters involved in incest but who's gonna admit that yes i have those in my home i mean that's not something anybody is gonna want to admit to this is true but given his history given the family history you know i just think it's interesting that the psychiatrist or psychologist said he was concerned because josh had claimed he didn't have any of that, but he did. The lie is not what concerns me. (laughs) Like, that's where I'm just, like, confused. Well, I think that when you look at the whole... See, finally, they're they're at least putting the... the, they're, They're putting it together. The dad has this crazy, like, is going to prison because of his voyeurism and his child pornography and all of that stuff. Right. And the apple obviously does not fall too far from the tree. And the whole time, Josh was acting like, I don't have any porn. I don't have anything, you know. And clearly, he's got a lot of stuff going on on his computer. So what what the evaluator did was Josh was mandated by the court to undergo a psychosexual evaluation and a polygraph test if he wanted the kids back. So to him, you know, we know that people can can lie on polygraph tests. I mean, we know that the Green River Killer totally did and passed it with flying colors. But that psychosexual evaluation, you know, that's that's pretty crazy. Like, it's it, there's a lot more to it there. And I'm what sure... Do you, what is that? What do you do in one of those? I mean, do you have any idea? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe they... <laughs> I mean, when I think of it, I see you smiling because maybe we're thinking the same thing. Like, like, do they? What do you do? You show them (laughs) images and see if they get aroused. I I think so. That's so gross. There has to be another way. I can't be believe that that's how they do it because that's just so wrong. Well, and here's the thing too: the grandparents recognized like this is another trigger for Josh, just like. They recognize after they had all the information about Susan and her secret will and her the video like and her wanting to push for getting a divorce if he didn't change his ways like he's up against the wall like he's already cracked in the in the you know he cracked when allegedly you know he if he had something to do with her disappearance it was because she was like threatening a divorce and he felt like he was like in the crosshairs and here it was again because he went to court thinking oh I'm getting my kids back and all now all of a sudden. It's like, oh, no, you're not. And we're going to give you a serious psychosexual evaluation and a polygraph test. And so, you know, he was under the gun and Chuck Chuck Cox was like, hey, this is when he, you know, he's capable of doing anything. The problem is it transitions from being about Susan, although obviously it's hugely about Susan, 
to the safety of the children. They are so vulnerable. And unfortunately, the evaluator didn't impose any change in the visitation schedule with Charlie and Brayden, even though the Cox family begged them that the kids were in imminent danger. And so on February 5th, 2012, just a few days after that requirement of the polygraph and the psychosexual evaluation, a social worker took Charlie and Brayden from their grandparents' home to Josh's rental home for a supervised visit. Now, this visit should have taken place in a secure DSHS facility, but somewhere along the line, a social worker had changed the visit to be allowed to take place in Josh's rental home. So the social worker who brought Charlie and Brayden to Josh's house had been there before for a supervised visit, but this time, Kim, this time it was different. The boys, you know, got out of the car, were a step ahead of her. When Josh opened the door long enough for the boys to run inside, and then he slammed that door in her face and proceeded to lock the door. And the social worker was pounding on the door, calling to be let in. When she started smelling gasoline, she ran to the sidewalk and called 911. I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy... Well, this, could, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday, and he, he didn't get his kids back. And this is really... I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. Okay. Has he threatened the lives of the children previously? I have no idea. All right. We'll have the first available deputy contact you. Thank you. Hi. Kim, it's so sad. She was like begging them to come. And the, the 911 operator was like total bureaucrat. Like, what's your name? Who's Josh Powell? What color is your car? And she's like, but do you think it's like what we talked about before, where they're just trying to keep them on the line? They're just trying to get as much information as possible. Or do you think it was something else? No, it's just like he was rude to her. He was really condescending. You know, and she, I mean, I can't believe that she wasn't screaming like, help, help. Like, I mean, maybe she, her training like would teach her to be more even keeled because I would have just been like, you need to get here. I mean, I, I can't even, I, I can't even imagine. Well, maybe because she was, maybe because she was so even keel, he wasn't taking it seriously. Uh, you know what? I'm sure. And I remember this, that they were embarrassed by that. I mean, more than embarrassed, mortified and like. That's not a 911 call you yeah. listen to and you say, good job, buddy. <laughs> that was a 911 call where you're like, I mean, I don't think that they could have gotten there fast enough. But, you know, who knows? Maybe they could have. Like, I, there's no point in, in going there. But you know how sometimes, like, the law enforcement can get there within, like, a minute, right? Just I like, feel like so often, though, that's be based on where they're coming from. Like, if there happens to be somebody in the area, they can get there in a minute. But if they don't happen to be in the area, it's, gonna, it's just going to take longer. Well, so after 10 minutes, the house just exploded with Charlie and Brayden inside. Hello? Hi, ma'am. Were you calling about the fire in the 8200 block? Yes, it's Do you know the exact address of the house? Or are yes. you it's 811-989-2. Okay. Okay. Do you know if anyone's in the house? 
Yes, there was a man and two children. I just dropped off the children, and he wouldn't let me in the door. Okay, stand line for the fire department. Okay, I'm going to get them on the line. Do not hang up. Hold on. The blast killed both boys and Josh, which was his diabolical plan to begin with. Authorities say that minutes before the inferno, Powell had sent emails to several people saying, quote, I'm sorry, goodbye, and emails to his pastor and cousins with instructions on where to find his money and how to shut off his utilities. Records also show that Josh had withdrawn $7,000 from his bank account and had donated his children's toys and books to local charities the day before the incident. So I spoke to Seattle attorney Ann Bremner, who's been helping the Cox family since the year after Susan's disappearance in 2009. And she gives us some insight into this case from her perspective. Ironically, the the day that the kids were murdered, I was scheduled to have dinner with Ann Rule, the true crime writer. And and she's been helping the family. You know, she was she's passed away since, but she was a wonderful person. And I just remember I was so devastated, and you know, all of us were that the only person I could think of other than the Coxes I wanted to spend time with was Anne. We just sat at dinner, and just our phones just were blowing up. We couldn't even talk. I just remember that like it was yesterday. I mean, I've never felt so sick in my stomach, and just like like the whole world, you know, had just gone off its axle. Um, and so I was involved for the family. In a number of ways, once the kids were murdered, of course, I went to the funeral, we're involved in the, you know, various arrangements with uh, um, legal matters about Susan's estate. Um, with respect to the kids, don't forget, you know, there's so many twists and turns in this case, but Josh's family wanted to bury him by the boys. And so we had to go through that whole process. I was in the process of getting um, a restraining order when Ron and Don actually came out and with Ed Troyer down in Tacoma, the PIO as a sheriff, with enough funds from the public to stop, to actually buy the, the, the plot that, that they wanted to use to bury Josh by the kids that he murdered. So I love that Anne brought up Ron and Dawn and their work with the Cox family because I was actually working with them as their news anchor when all this happened. And they spent several days focusing their radio show on helping the Cox family, making sure that Charlie and Braden would have their own space away from the Powell family, raising money for those sites that were around Charlie and Braden. And their dedication made such a huge difference in so many lives. So even though Charlie and Braden are gone, even though Susan is gone, it is such a touching statement that the community came together, donated money to at least give these boys a little bit of peace in the end. Well, and I, um, she also mentions Ed Troyer, who's the public, as you know, the public information officer. And he has done so much in this case and was right there with Ron and Don. And I can just hear Ron and Don, like, this is what they do best, right? Like, and... And I've heard, like Anne said, those plots were really expensive. I don't know how expensive they were, but I mean, it's not like it was $5. I mean, it was... No, it was like like tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. I don't understand. I asked Anne, like, talk about this family. Why would they try to get Josh buried next to the boys that he had murdered? And this is what she had to say. That they're 
with some information that we had a certain family members who tried to get the life insurance proceeds to pay for the, the plot because those are expensive. So there was like a run on the insurance from the get-go. Um, I, I couldn't believe it when I heard it. Um, I, in fact, when I got the call, I think the person said, are you sitting down? And, and it's just, I can't think of any motive. Um, maybe they felt, if you speculate, you know, I know a lot of the things they've written over the years and they put out on the Internet, um, et cetera, is I think that there was, and I took Michael's deposition for a full day before he killed himself. But, and I took Lovelina's and um, Terica, the mother, and spent time with Stephen. So, given what I know about the family and what they have said publicly about Josh and about this case, they really saw Josh as a victim. Um, that they felt he was a victim of the press, and they felt that he was a victim during the course of the um, dependency proceedings. Basically, there was a battle between the families over these huge insurance policies, basically $3.5 million or something crazy between the two of them. Right. And that Josh cut out Susan and her family from these insurance and then put all of it in Michael's name and then like a couple of trinkets percentage-wise for um, a couple of his other siblings, right? And so... They felt like he was a victim of the press and media and that he was the victim. That Josh was? That Josh was, that they hounded him, that he, you know, was was forced into this, into a corner and that he was a victim of this. I don't see how anybody could make that argument because with all of the material, the evidence of pornographic material and other things from Josh's house, from Stephen's house, even if he wasn't physically abusive to his wife or kids, clearly there was some depravity happening. He wasn't just being made a scapegoat for no reason. Yeah, I mean, you could see, like, when you look at the the videos, you can just see, like, his, the weariness. And, I mean, good, for, good. I'm glad, you know, because what he did. Right, exactly. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't get how the family could do that. I really don't. I mean, I, I just, that, that doesn't, no matter if the media hounds you or whatever, that doesn't give you justification for killing your own sons and abducting and killing their mother. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it was a question I had to ask because I just am like, who are these people? Right. Um, so earlier I said to remember Josh's brother, Michael, the same brother who helped Josh pack up his Utah house and move to Puyallup in 2013, approximately one year after Josh had murdered his sons and committed suicide, Michael jumped from the roof of a parking garage and killed himself. Now, police say there is strong circumstantial evidence that Michael Powell knew what Josh had allegedly done to Susan and helped him dispose of the body. Detectives say that Michael took his Ford Taurus to a place called Lindell's Auto Salvage specifically because they specialized in crushing cars and that he did this back in December of 2009, which is not long at all after Susan vanished. And later when police asked him about it, Michael actually ordered satellite images from that lot because he was looking for that car because police got lucky and found that Ford Taurus, a cadaver dog indicated that a decomposing human body had been in the trunk 
Unfortunately, DNA tests were inconclusive. Now, police had questioned Michael several times in 2012 and said he was very evasive about why he left the car at that location. Police say that Michael's car was towed to Pendleton from Baker, Oregon, which is roughly 400 miles from West Valley City. Ironically, that's about half the distance. Remember the 800 miles that he made on that rental car? You know, the day after that Josh drove the day after his wife went missing. Now, Utah authorities have since said, as I said, that that they believe Josh and Michael were accomplices in the murder of Susan. And Anne actually interviewed him. And I asked her, like, what was that like? Oh, Michael, I brought police officers with me um, for security. I was worried that that had some information that gave me concern for the safety of the participants. So I brought two police officers with me. I asked for him to be searched. He, and this is on record, um, he refused. He, um, he refused to say whether he was armed, and his lawyer didn't want the police officers there. His lawyer's office was in, in an old house, so I had the officer stand just outside the window for the full day. And you're no shrinking lily. I'm not, I'm not a shrinking violet. No. <laughs> a shrinking violet. Right. <laughs> no, I am not. And so now Anne is representing the Coxes in a case against the state of Washington for not protecting Charlie and Braden from their father. Now, she gives us a breakdown of where the case is. He just had a long and tortured road because when we first filed it and had it in federal court, it was removed to federal court by the attorney general's office. Um, a court dismissed it on summary judgment. So we had to go to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that all took a long time. We won in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and of course now we're back in state court on, on this trial that started on February 10th. And what this case is really about is these two boys, Charlie and Braden, were in the care, custody, and control of CPS when they were murdered by their dad. And the, the CPS knew that he was a suspect in killing his own wife, and they also knew that these kids were potentially witnesses because they were saying things like, Drawing pictures of the mom in the trunk of the car, saying mommy's in the mine, you know, saying saying things, you know, about the camping trip they supposedly took at midnight in the snow in Utah where she disappeared, and also saying things like they found mommy's body and, and he would be, you know, demonstrably upset when they said things like that, and my mommy's dead, you know, all these kinds of things. And, of course, the kids were with him during the, that ill-fated trip. And she never came back. She never came back. So in a nutshell, this case is basically that they knew that he was a suspect in the murder of the mother and that these kids were potential witnesses. There were additionally about 50 red flags that were ignored or intentionally um, disregarded by CPS that led to the death of these kids. And the most, I think, striking thing to the most, you know, more casual observer of this trial is he was visiting the kids in a secure DCSF facility. No kid ever gets killed in one of those facilities, I mean, anywhere in the United States. And then inexplicably, there was a decision by one caseworker to move visitation to Josh Powell's house, and that's where he got access to them, got an axe, killed him, and set the house on fire. So the official cause of death of seven-year-old Charlie and five-year-old Braden was carbon monoxide poisoning, but the coroner noted that Both children suffered significant chopping injuries on their head, 
and neck. Now, a hatchet was found by Josh's body, and investigators believe that Josh attacked Charlie and Braden with the hatchet repeatedly on the neck and shoulders, subduing them, though they were still alive, then literally doused their bodies with gasoline and spread gas throughout the house and set it on fire. So if there was ever any, any, any doubt that he murdered his wife, he just blew it out of the water. Oh, yeah. Anybody who can do that to their two little boys could do anything to a grown woman. Yeah. I mean, we still have to say allegedly, but in my mind, of course he did it. If you could do that to your children, if you could do that to them. If you could do that to anybody, but especially like these boys had suffered so much. And I get it that sometimes people are like, well, they've suffered so much. I want to end their misery. I don't want them to suffer any longer. But there are ways to do that with compassion. Well, and there was no level of compassion in this you know act what? He at didn't, all. He didn't care about them. He didn't want to live without them. He knew it was over for him because not only... Not only were they going to be taken away because, you know, uh, my money's on the fact that he wouldn't be able to pass that psychosexual evaluation based on what they found on his computer and that he wouldn't be able to pass a polygraph. And on top of that, the the boys were starting to talk. The boys were starting to talk about what had happened from their perspectives. But now the most important thing that the Coxes want from the lawsuit is change in the actions of policy of DSHS, because there were so many red flags. I mean, the Coxes begged them, begged them not to let Josh have them. We want this to never happen again, ever. But we want this to be a verdict from the jury that speaks to how wrong these wrongs were. And that you can't have an agency where they don't follow their own policies, they don't train their individuals, it's it's almost like there's kind of a reckless indifference that permeates the whole agency. It's like a um, it, it's just kind of putting one foot in front of the other without putting thought, at least in our case, um, to the consequences of really major decisions. And in this case, we had a, a red flag exhibit for the jury of like 50 different red flags that were ignored. Any one of which had it, any one of these been hidden. The kids would still be alive. So when he was a five and a seven-year-old, being killed with a hatchet and being set on fire, there's got to be something good, some legacy from Carolyn Braden. I mean, they lived through that. They they were conscious through all that. We had a doctor that said they they knew they were alive until until they succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning. So they were alive five to seven minutes. I mean, it's the worst of the worst. The interesting thing about the law in Washington state, and I'm not sure if it's exactly the same elsewhere, but something that I I know is something I know is true in here in Washington state is that the state imperative is to reunite families. So when you talk to a social worker about handling child abuse cases, the first thing that they try to do is not necessarily to protect the child. It's to reunite the families. And so I think that's where you get into this. Well, why was Josh still allowed to see his kids? 
when we knew there was some kind of criminal behavior happening. You know, we didn't possibly know the depth of it, but we knew something was wrong with that, you know, whole situation, obviously. Why was he still allowed to see those kids? Well, because in the state of Washington, the number one imperative of social workers is to reunite families or to keep them unified. And so even if you have severe abuse situations, it's very likely the parents can still get some kind of visitation. Oh, well, and you're spot on. You are absolutely spot on, Kim. Anne says that the Cox family suit, you know, basically they don't want DSHS to just parental rights are the number one priority. The children, what's in the best interest of the children should be the number one priority. Another interesting thing I talked to Anne about was her thoughts about how Josh's manipulation played a part in this horrific tragedy. I mean, when he was evaluated, and this is not to give props to Josh, but just to give you a picture of this, a fuller picture of this guy, he um, he is IQ tested at 128, which is higher than about 97% of the population. And I asked Anne, what if anything of Josh's intelligence had to do with him never being charged in this? And he, you know, she basically said that he was such a huge squeaky wheel. He got away with a lot of stuff, not murder per se, but just in life, in their relationship together, his manipulation of Susan. I I also think that when you start getting away with those little things, the things that you find yourself wanting to get away with get bigger and bigger and bigger. So you think you're invincible and you could do whatever you want. Well, and that gets back to your original thing that you were talking about history. Like his dad wrote the book on that. His dad was against authority, against, you know, was was angry about politics, you know, angry at religion, angry at boundaries, didn't want to have any boundaries, didn't want to do any, you know, he thought people were idiots. And that's basically was Josh's whole role. Like how Susan lived with that for as long as she did. I mean, clearly it just wore her down. And I think that it's important to talk about the good works that the Cox family is doing now to support families that are experiencing domestic violence. You know, they've made it their mission to, you know, help primarily. I mean, men can be victims of of domestic or survivors of domestic violence, but it's mostly women. Let's just let's just call it like that. And they're just turning this horrible tragedy into helping you know, other women see that it's not just, you know, this is an emotionally abusive story. It's not necessarily the physical abuse that so often you you feel goes hand in hand with domestic violence, right? Well, and the other thing is that that emotional abuse can escalate to physical violence. And I, and I think that if there are efforts made to deal with that emotional abuse early on before it gets to that point, that's that's great. Yeah. And, and know the signs like. You said, like, you can't imagine someone taking your car away. I can't either. But I think that it's like it's a slow kind of a thing where suddenly like all of your rights are being stripped and you have someone like manipulating you and changing the way that you think about yourself and your perceptions. And and her family, remember, was all in Washington. Yeah, but you know, what's crazy, though, is usually this happens when there's not a supportive family there to give you advice, to help you see things in a different way, to to be a, a soft place to fall if you need to leave. She had all that. 
she had that supportive family and parents who really cared and wanted to be part of her life. And I'm just amazed that, you know, in that situation, even with all that support, she wasn't able to get out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something to right now during the pandemic in Washington, I'm kind of flipping for a second. You know, police say that, you know, overall crime is down in Washington state, but domestic calls are up. And it just it just warrants like we are going to put some um, links up on our website. If you, you know, need support, need help, you know, there are resources out there. I mean, I just think we should put stuff up on our website to we think that we think that we're suffering because we're stuck at home. But like when you're in a supportive family and you're stuck at home, it's a lot different than when you're in a toxic relationship where there's either physical or emotional or both abuse and you're trapped with your abuser, you know? Anne really wanted me to let everyone know that the Coxes are so appreciative for all of the support they received after all of these years. I mean, obviously this case has been going on a long time. And I just want to say that my clients, Chuck and Judy Cox, so appreciate everybody's support and, and empathy, you know, through all these years. I, they can't say enough how important that's been to them and how meaningful that's been to them. I mean, they've been through the worst tragedy I think any of us can think of. It was their daughter, then it was their grandchildren, and they tried to keep the kids from Josh. I mean, they, so they feel like we tried everything and still this happened. So I just want to say that they're very, very grateful for the support that they've gotten from the community. And it's been steadfast support for about a decade, which is just wonderful. So, Kim, what do you have on the agenda for next week? Well, Carolyn, a lot of comparisons have been made between what we're dealing with right now with this coronavirus pandemic and the Spanish flu of 1918. So for fun, if you can call it that, I thought it would be nice to go back in time and talk about a murder mystery from that era. It happened in Spokane at what is now known as one of the most haunted mansions in the city of Spokane. And at the time, it was bought by a Dr. Rudolf Hahn, someone that people would dub the Mad Doctor of South Hill. We'll bring you that story next week. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>